Happy spooky season, ParCast listeners. I'm Wendy from Unsolved Murders. And I'm Carter. In honor of Halloween, we're inviting you to light a torch and descend into the tombs of ancient Egypt's most prolific figures, as ParCast brings you a special event called The Mummy's Curse. We'll be dusting off cobwebs and cracking open coffins on five different shows. From conspiracy theories and haunted places to unsolved murders, unexplained mysteries, and rituals, we're excited to bring you history's spookiest and most adventurous tales. Have you ever wondered what happened to Nefertiti's lost tomb? Are you curious about King Tut's mysterious life and death? Do you want to explore Cairo's most haunted mansion or crack open the Book of the Dead? We're going to make like a mummy and unravel it all. This is part two of our look at the murder of King Tut. We'll follow a hundred years of investigation into one of the world's oldest cold cases and narrow in on the most likely suspects. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder, incest, and stillbirths. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Ah! My son! Around 1323 BCE, King Sapiluliuma of Hadi received heart-wrenching news. His son Zananza had been murdered. Zananza had been sent to Egypt to marry the country's queen. Her previous husband, King Tutankhamun, had died suddenly and she wanted Zananza to become the new pharaoh. Their partnership would have ended the wars between Hadi and Egypt, which had raged for decades. It could have finally brought peace to the region. But now, all hope for an alliance was lost. The king of the Hittites didn't know who killed his son, but he was certain they came from Egypt. It might have been the queen who begged for the alliance in the first place, her hawkish war general, or the long-serving grand vizier. Or it could have been any Egyptian who saw the prince's party on the road and took the opportunity to slay their long-standing enemies. In the aftermath, the king wrote desperate letters trying to figure out who killed his son. The replies confirmed that, yes, someone had killed his son, but no, there were no suspects. The killers would not be punished. King Sapiluliuma might have suspected these killers were being protected by the Egyptians, and he couldn't stand for that. So he turned to the justice system of the ancient world. War. Since the king couldn't punish his son's killers, he'd punish all of Egypt. He launched a vicious attack on Egyptian colonies in Syria. The Hittite armies ousted the Egyptians, took control of Syrian cities, and captured dozens of prisoners. They brought their captives to Hadi as slaves, but that wasn't all they brought back. They also carried a plague. For over 20 years after the attack, a mysterious disease ravaged the Hittites. It killed hundreds, including King Sapiluliuma. Had he left Egypt alone, he might have lived longer. Instead, he poked his nose into who killed his son and the mystery of King Tut. 
And Suppy Luliuma wasn't the only one. Over the centuries, others who tried to uncover the truth about King Tut and Prince Ananza also suffered early deaths. It raised a dark suspicion. King Sapiluliuma may have been the first victim of the so-called curse of King Tut's tomb. If that's true, it might explain why Zananza and Tut's deaths remain a mystery even 3,000 years later. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our final episode on the death of King Tut, a pharaoh during Egypt's 18th dynasty. After 3,000 years, this might be our coldest case ever. Last week, we examined the political turmoil Tut inherited when he took the throne and the pair of dramatic deaths that followed. This week, we'll jump to the early 20th century, crack open King Tut's tomb, and try to understand how he really died. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Before we begin today's story, we want to acknowledge that King Tut's death is a contentious subject. Expert opinions are all over the map, blaming everything from a chariot crash to a genetic disorder to malaria to an arrow in the chest. Some even claim he was mauled by a hippo. It's hard for Egyptologists to even agree on basic facts about King Tut's life. He might have been an adventurous hunter or a frail, inbred boy. Some claim he was an incarnation of Jesus Christ, though some have their doubts on that one. That said, since our show is Unsolved Murders, we're going to focus on investigating the murder theory. So, let's jump into it. 
British noblemen in the early 1900s had a few hobbies available, horse breeding, gambling, and Egyptian archaeology. George Herbert, the fifth Earl of Carnarvon, did all three. Herbert's best known by his title, so we'll call him Lord Carnarvon from here on out. Lord Carnarvon started funding archaeological expeditions in 1907. He hired a commoner named Howard Carter to travel through Egypt looking for ancient lost tombs. It was a harmonious arrangement. Howard could pursue his passion while Lord Carnarvon could impress dinner guests with his grand discoveries. After all, Howard was no novice. He started his career as an artist, then worked for the Egyptian Exploration Fund and Egypt's Antiquities Service. Back in 1902, he'd uncovered the grave of Hatshepsut, Egypt's most famous female pharaoh. With Lord Carnarvon's help, he was convinced he could find something even bigger. As the years passed, his conviction never wavered, but Lord Carnarvon's did. In six years, they didn't find anything new in the Valley of the Kings. By 1922, Lord Carnarvon was ready to give up. He summoned Howard to his home, Highclere Castle. It's time we return to your concession in the Valley of the Kings. Now that the tomb 55 hubbub has died down, we can work undisturbed. Carter, you're a good and loyal man, but I simply cannot fund another expedition. Why not? You can't possibly have run out of money. Unless... You've run out of money? I haven't run out of money yet, but my wife is begging me to save some portion for our children. What about the treasure? Making history? The pharaohs? It's time to let sleeping pharaohs lie, if there are even any left. Of course there are! I told you! You understand why my wife is putting her foot down. It's been 15 years, Howard. Pardon, Lord, but she's forcing you to give up too quick. You'll find other work. Maybe return to the Egypt Exploration Fund. I'll finance it. Oh, come now. How could you possibly afford an expedition? I haven't been paying you that well. If you won't fund it, I'll take out a loan. Just let me keep digging. You clearly have faith in the project, and I don't want you out on the streets. Fine. I'll pay for it, but this is the last expedition, Carter. After this, we hang up the hat. I'll bring you a mummy to hang it on. In late 1922, Howard Carter set out on the most important dig of his career. It was his last chance to make his dreams come true. He focused on an untouched area in the Valley of the Kings. He knew there had to be something there. In the first week of November, his team found a hidden stairway leading underground, and at the bottom, an ancient symbol. This wasn't just any tomb. It was a royal one. Instead of opening the door, Howard Carter bolted up the stairs and sent Lord Carnarvon a telegram. At last have found wonderful discovery in Valley. A magnificent tomb with seals intact. Lord Carnarvon prepared to go to Egypt immediately. After all, he wasn't actually hurting for money. His wife was allegedly an illegitimate Rothschild, and they literally lived in the castle from the TV show Downton Abbey. Before he left, Lord Carnarvon made an important appointment. Spread your fingers wider. 
Lovely, thank you, Lord Carnarvon. Your lifeline here, it grows thin. Pursue this venture, and you will face great peril. Not again. Again? Oh. I see. You've consulted another psychic. Uh, yes. Chiero's reading was discomforting. I hoped you'd present a fine alternative. Allow me to look into that encounter. Ah, yes. Chiero said that if you traveled to Egypt, you would meet an untimely death? Hmm, undoubtedly. It's in your lifeline here. See? That can't be right. Read my other palm. How about I consult my crystal ball? Hmm? Perhaps it can give us some more perspective. Oh, dear. I, I, I see a, a tomb. A youth lies inside. One of his advisors places a golden mask of death. This man is not to be trusted. He's buried many kings. It shifts. I see a group of men. You, Lord Carnarvon, and your servants opening the tomb. It yields bursts of light. A hurricane! The aged advisor looms in the lightning. He punishes all who seek to uncover his doings. His curse flashes upon you. You must cancel your journey to Egypt. Impossible! This excavation could be tremendously important. And I'm negotiating exclusive coverage with the Times. The genie's out of the bottle, Velma. Put it back in. Make something up, but don't go if you value your life. According to the famed psychic Velma, Lord Carnarvon visited him on multiple occasions before leaving for Egypt. Each time, Velma warned the Lord not to go. And he wasn't the only one. Lord Carnarvon frequently consulted psychics and hosted seances. By all accounts, he truly believed in unseen forces. And they were clearly saying, stay home. But the Lord ignored the prophecies. The tomb just seemed too enticing. He was in Luxor by the end of November. In Egypt, Lord Carnarvon greeted an enthusiastic Howard Carter. The archaeologist had waited three whole weeks to open the tomb, and he must have been shaking with anticipation. The men had no idea what lay behind the sealed door, so they simply called it Tomb 62. Finally, on November 26, 1922, they journeyed underground. They opened the door of their discovery. Incredible. Even the walls are sculpted. Look, this pharaoh was a seafaring man. I doubt he fed farther than his couch, since he thought he'd need three of them in the afterlife. Well, they are lovely couches. <gasps> Howard, is that a mummy? It's a statue, sir. That psychic scared you, eh? How dare you suggest such a thing? <gasps> Why, look at this gorgeous wooden cat. Beautiful. I've never seen a tomb this full. It all looks... So perfect. Lord Carnarvon! No! The cat! It turned to dust in my hands. I'm cursed. It's not your fault, Lord. Ancient materials can fall apart easily. One of the perils of an undiscovered grave. 
There's no curse. Oh, uh, of course. Pardon. I'm a bit overexcited. But if the treasure falls apart with a touch, how are we to get anything out? Very carefully. Somehow, grave robbers hadn't looted Tomb 62, and the dry heat of the Egyptian desert kept the grave mostly intact. There were over 30 jars of wine, images of the pharaoh hunting, and even a few board games. Analysis of the art and hieroglyphs revealed this was the tomb of Pharaoh Tutankhamun, buried over 3,000 years ago. It was an incredible find for Egyptian art and archaeology, so much so that the Met Museum sent their entire local staff over to assist and scope out potential new exhibits. Everything was photographed before being moved, just in case it disintegrated when disturbed. As the team cataloged the artifacts, they started to notice some oddities. There were no records of the king's parents or his reign. The grave goods showed the pharaoh was married, but his wife wasn't featured in any of the murals, as if the king didn't want her with him in the afterlife. Plus, there was the fact that Tut died extremely young, at around 19 years old. Something must have gone very wrong for him, or for Egypt. The only way to find out what happened was to dig through his stuff. For the next three months, the team carefully documented each item before removing it from the tomb. By February 1923, they'd cleared a path to the second chamber, which held the sarcophagus. They opened the door and found another door. Then another and another. The burial chamber held four concentric shrines, each almost as big as the room itself. All were gilded with real gold. And at the very center, a granite sarcophagus. The top lid showed a crack that had been hastily patched, evidence that Tut's tomb was a rush job. After the lid cracked, there apparently wasn't time to get a new one. Howard Carter and Lord Carnarvon knew they'd have to take extra care opening the sarcophagus, so they arranged to lift the granite lid with a pulley system. However, it would take time to set up, and the archaeological dig season was almost over. Egypt's summers are notoriously unforgiving, and no one wanted to be working outside in 110-degree heat. So they packed up the tomb and made plans to unwrap the mummy at a later date. But Lord Carnarvon never got to see the mummy he'd sunk a small fortune into uncovering, because a few weeks later, he suddenly died. While in Egypt, the Lord suffered a mosquito bite. It got infected and killed him before he could even go home. The psychic's prediction came true. After Lord Carnarvon's death, a new complication dogged the investigation. The infamous Mummy's Curse. Allegedly, anyone who dared to investigate King Tut's tomb would meet a sudden demise. But a curse wasn't going to stop Howard Carter's team, no matter how many people perished. Coming up, Howard Carter and his team face the curse head-on with an autopsy 3,000 years in the making. 
You tell yourself it's only a movie. None of this could ever happen to you. You feel relieved until you discover what you're watching is based on actual events. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa and Greg from the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. In our Halloween special, Real Horror, we're spotlighting three of the most iconic horror films of all time and telling the terrifying true stories that inspired them. Recovering the real influences behind characters like Ghostface from the 90s mega-hit Scream, Hannibal Lecter and Buffalo Bill from the Oscar-winning thriller The Silence of the Lambs, and Leatherface from the 70s cult classic The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Enjoy Real Horror, the serial killer's three-part Halloween special. Listen to all three episodes the final week of October, free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. In 1923, Egyptologist Howard Carter hit a bittersweet career highlight. He finally saw the mummified remains of King Tutankhamun, but he did it without the patron and friend he'd worked with for over a decade. The loss of Lord Carnarvon was unsettling. It felt like supernatural forces were guarding the ancient tomb. Still, Howard Carter wanted to make the most of Lord Carnarvon's final gift— which meant unwrapping the mummy. Unfortunately, he didn't have Lord Carnarvon's charm and social graces. He struggled to navigate an international project. It didn't help that the mummy was also the center of a media blitz. Everyone wanted to know what was hidden in the sarcophagus, and the public pressure meant things had to go perfectly. Two and a half years dragged on without much movement. Once they got the politics sorted out in 1925, the expedition faced another challenge. Tar. King Tut's main sarcophagus held three smaller coffins, packed inside each other like Russian nesting dolls, and layered with a sticky, pitch-like material. It coated the mummy, too. There was no melting it. They'd have to autopsy the body while it was still stuck inside its coffin. British doctor Douglas Derry and Egyptian doctor Salah Bey Hamdi were chosen to do the honors. Both were experienced anatomists, but even they felt overwhelmed. Take care. There may be more scarabs wrapped in the layers. Uh, Useless. Even a high-grade steel chisel can't unstick this mummy. We'll never be able to dissect. Maybe a hot knife would melt the resin. Uh, Let me try. Godspeed to you, Dr. Hamdi. Ah, son of a dog! Beg pardon? It's stuck. You're correct, Dr. Derry. Useless. Hmm. Here's an idea. Instead of the tar, cut here. Make a large incision down the middle. You mean to slice a 3,000-year-old artifact in pieces? Unless you have another way to examine the body? 
Give me another knife. That's more like it. Ah. Uh, open up the chest more. I don't see the heart. It has to be... Oh, this is very bad. They wouldn't bury a man without his heart. No brain, sure, but never no heart. A real Tin Man situation. A what? The Wizard of Oz. You know, one character's got no brains, another has no heart, the last has no courage. Ah. Seems our mummy certainly has courage. What do you... Oh. The, uh, undercarriage is engorged. Suppose this young king had grand plans for the afterlife? I don't think those who buried him were trying to send him to the afterlife. When doctors Derry and Hamdi autopsied King Tut, they were shocked. The body was different from every other known mummy, with an erect penis and no heart. The ancient Egyptians believed a person's essence rested in their heart, not their brain. So while all other organs were preserved outside the corpse, the heart stayed inside the mummy's chest. It's possible whoever buried him intentionally removed the heart so he wouldn't be able to enter the afterlife. Regardless, someone had taken liberties with Tut's body. Maybe because of that, doctors Derry and Hamdi couldn't come to any firm conclusions. The inquest ended, and in 1926, Howard Carter's team resealed the tomb. They laid the boy king back to rest, though it wouldn't be in peace. His chopped-up mummy lay under a sheet of glass so tourists could view it and his treasures were flown off to museums around the world. Pretty soon, King Tut became one of the world's most famous mummies. And not just because of the museum exhibits. Over the next decade, nearly a dozen men involved with the excavation met early deaths. After Lord Carnarvon died, George J. Gould got pneumonia, Sir Archibald Douglas Reed died of sudden illness, Prince Ali Kamalfami Bey was shot by his wife. Sir Lee Stack was assassinated. Hugh Evelyn White died by suicide. Aaron Ember perished in a house fire. Richard Bethel was murdered while sleeping. And Arthur Mace, the first person to suggest King Tut was murdered, is said to have died of arsenic poisoning. The story of the curse became so popular, it inspired a 1932 film, a 1940 reimagining with four sequels, and a 1959 reboot. By the 1960s, King Tut was a household name, though his death remained a mystery. In 1968, the time was right to reopen the case with X-ray technology. That year, Dr. Ronald Harrison led a team of British and Egyptian scientists in the first scientific examination of the mummy since the 1920s. The curse wouldn't stop him. Determined to find answers, he lugged bulky X-ray equipment into the desert underground. Dr. Harrison's team was determined, and it paid off. In a BBC documentary, he showed off the X-rays he'd taken of King Tut's skull— he pointed to an unusually thin section of bone. 
it could have been caused by a hemorrhage under the membranes overlying the brain in this region, and this could have been caused by a blow to the back of the head, and this in turn could have been responsible for death. As it turned out, the second examination of King Tut's mummy uncovered the second hint of foul play. King Tut died after a head injury. The x-rays also showed small pieces of bone rattling around inside the skull. Harrison's team thought these might have chipped off as a result of the head trauma. Now, the head injury could have been an accident. And it's important to note that Dr. Harrison didn't directly say King Tut was murdered. So even though it felt like groundbreaking evidence, the case went cold for another 30 years, until the late 1990s, when Dr. Bob Breyer appeared in a TLC documentary. He outlined the oddities of Tut's mummy on screen. But unlike Dr. Harrison, Dr. Breyer stated that King Tut might have been murdered. This time, the announcement took off. Major international news outlets reported that Dr. Breyer had reignited a 3,000-year-old murder case. Fan mail poured in, as did hate mail. Even Dr. Breyer agreed there wasn't enough evidence to say whether King Tut was murdered or not. But now the investigation was on. While he worked on a book deal, Another archaeologist planned to examine King Tut's mummy, and for the first time, the man leading the charge was Egyptian, Zahi Hawes. The previous two investigations were led by British men and resulted in King Tut's treasures being shipped off to British museums. By 2002, it was high time an Egyptian led the research. That year, Dr. Hawes took over as head of the country's antiquities department, He wanted to re-examine every known royal mummy with the latest technology, starting with King Tut. In January 2005, Hawes authorized removing the mummy from the tomb for the first time since 1926. His team set up a tech trailer in the Valley of the Kings where they subjected the mummy to CT scans, DNA analysis, and 3D X-rays. As they moved the mummy out of the tomb and into the trailer that held the CT scan machine, ominous clouds gathered above. The mummy entered the scanner and a sandstorm broke loose. The machine stopped working. Once again, it felt like the investigation was cursed. Luckily, Dr. Hawes's team got the machine back up and running later that day. By nightfall, they had answers about King Tut's head injury. There actually wasn't one. The thin spot that Harrison found in the X-ray was just a technical issue. He'd been forced to take the X-ray from an odd angle in the crypt, which threw off the results. And the pieces of bone inside the skull weren't coated in resin, which meant they'd broken off after his brain was removed and his skull was preserved. Maybe even when doctors Derry and Hamdi chiseled and sliced the body during the first autopsy. Either way, the results were conclusive. King Tut wasn't killed by a blow to the head. But that didn't mean he hadn't been murdered at all. Around 2010, 
University of Chicago professor Ray Johnson discovered ancient Egyptian masonry that had been recycled. Though the bricks were found in Luxor's medieval buildings, Johnson realized they were covered in ancient carvings. He traced them back to an old city gate from around 1300 BCE, but the carvings still didn't line up. Before the gate, they'd been taken from somewhere else. Johnson ran images of the bricks through a computerized puzzle solver, connecting lines to create an image. The pixels revealed King Tut leading his armies into battle. Johnson concluded that the bricks were made for the pharaoh's mortuary temple, a place where the living could honor their king after he died. But within two decades of his death, someone destroyed the young king's temple. As if they wanted to erase King Tut from history. With this new information, Dr. Bob Breyer proposed a fresh theory. King Tut's murder wouldn't be solved by examining his body, but by exploring what happened in Egypt after he died. Coming up, ancient records hint at a coup. Now, back to the story. When we last left Pharaoh Tutankhamun's widow and half-sister, Queen Ankhesenamun, she'd lost all hope. Her plan to marry Hittite prince Zenanza fell apart after he was murdered around 1323 BCE. She'd run out of options. There were no other royal family members, and it was too late to strike another alliance. Per tradition, the new pharaoh needed to be selected before the last pharaoh's burial. Time was running out. With days to go before they had to seal Tut's tomb, Queen Anke faced her worst fear, marrying a commoner. Devastated, she met with her late husband's advisors, War General Haremheb and Grand Vizier Ai. I understand why you brought me here. I have no son and no armies. I'm a pawn to whomever you've chosen for the throne. You're more than a pawn. You'll birth the next pharaoh. The child of a servant can never be a true pharaoh. Do you miss your late husband so much you desire to join him in his tomb? I would not destroy my kingdom for my own happiness. I am not my father. We shall see. General, I said I'll marry the man you've selected. Good. I'll perform the last pharaoh's burial rituals with honor. And tomorrow, we wed. You? I? Of course. On the pharaoh's death, no man is above the Grand Vizier. Grand Vizier, that was not as we discussed. I thought- Don't challenge your new pharaoh. Enough. I'll marry you. I- Very well. I have a kingdom to attend to. Queen, why would you allow I to be Pharaoh? He won't live so long as you. At the time of Pharaoh Tut's death, Queen Anke was likely in her 20s, while Grand Vizier I was around 70. But that didn't hold up their wedding. Centuries later, Archaeologists turned up a ring engraved with both of their cartouches. 
it was a wedding favor commemorating the union of the new pharaoh and his wife. This explains why Anke wasn't featured in Tut's tomb paintings. She was going to be buried with her second husband. The murals on the walls of King Tut's tomb show the next part of the story. I, dressed as a pharaoh, performs the rituals to send Tut into the afterlife. This is what set off red flags for art conservator Arthur Mace all the way back in 1923. Usually a priest is depicted in these murals, not the next pharaoh, but I decided to insert himself in the holy man's place. And while he was at it, he covered King Tut's tomb in symbols of Egypt's traditional polytheistic religion. He left no indication of the singular sun god that Tut's father, and maybe Tut himself, believed in. King Tut's burial chamber wall shows him in an Osiris costume. He was mummified with his arms crossed over his stomach, just like traditional representations of the fertility god. Speaking of the fertility god, as we mentioned during the autopsy, Tutankhamun is the only known Egyptian to be mummified with an erect penis. It's another possible symbol of Osiris, though it also might have been a screw you to the boy king since Tut died childless. While we can't confirm the exact reasoning, there's no way the position of the organ wasn't intentional, especially when it's paired with the missing heart. It seems likely Pharaoh I wanted to humble his predecessor. After all, once Tut's tomb was sealed, the power behind the throne became the power on the throne. I summoned his scribes and artisans with very specific orders. Pharaoh, the statue commissioned of the late Pharaoh's likeness is complete. It's near 17 feet tall, and if I do say so, nicely captures the boy's eyes. What a glory to his memory and the kingdom. And where does it stand? In the Valley of the Kings, guarding Tutankhamun's temple. Have the artisans scrape off his cartouche and engrave mine in the clean stone, the great Pharaoh Eye. Yes, Pharaoh. Remove any trace of the Aten, too. I, you already have me as your wife. Must you also take away what little remains of my husband? This isn't about your feelings, my queen. This is about Egypt. Pharaoh Tutankhamun began his reign in Armana. You recall how your father's reign there nearly destroyed us? What if the people get dangerous ideas about only following one god? But the statue is in Thebes, not Amarna. And my father is forgotten. Let us keep a memory of Tutankhamun's success. Understood, queen. Ignore the woman, scribe. Go tell the artisans now. Tutankhamun's cartouche must be scraped away. Your wish is law, Pharaoh. I'll attend to it at once. Listen to me, Anke. We must destroy the memory of the Amarna misstep. Erase Akhenaten's blunders, even his son. It's too risky to let the people remember a different way of life. I, too, grew up in Amarna. Am I a misstep? No. You and your children are the future of Egypt. You used to say that to Tut. Yes. Tell me, husband, am I destined to vanish too? Shortly after her marriage to Ai, Queen Anke vanishes from the records. It's assumed she died, but the how remains a mystery. 
because her mummy has yet to be found. She definitely wasn't buried with I. He died of old age a few years into his reign, and his tomb art doesn't feature Anke at all. After decades as the pharaoh's number two, I was only number one for a brief time, but he made sure that was what he'd be remembered for. After he was mummified, he was buried in the tomb originally designed for Tut. It's not clear how exactly his heir was determined, but there may have been some violence in this transition of power, because I's successor was General Horemheb, now Pharaoh Horemheb. I shall run this kingdom like I ran the army. My firm hand will yield stability. My judges shall keep the people in line, and the blood of the rebellious will flow in the streets. The era of chaos is over. The era of Horemheb begins. And it will be inaugurated with the death of the Aten. Demolish the last of his temples in Amarna. What remains to demolish? A few bricks? Even bricks can start a revolution. I want them crushed to dust. Pharaoh, consider that we could reuse the bricks for the new city gates, if you anticipate another war. Not those. Take bricks from King Tutankhamun's mortuary temple. Tear his memory down. On second thought, do keep the tall statue. It strikes fear in the eyes of our enemies. But have the artisan scrape off eyes cartouche. It should read, Pharaoh Horemheb. Destroy temples to the Aten, reuse bricks, replace I's name with yours. Don't replace, scorch. Strike Akhenaten, Tutankhamun, and I from the royal records. History shall read Amenhotep III, Amenhotep IV, Horemheb. Understood? Amenhotep, Amenhotep, Horemheb. I won't have any curious young scribes asking questions about murdered Hittites and assassinated boy kings. And the tombs, Pharaoh? Shall we dismantle them as well? Leave the boy king's tomb untouched. The child did not know any better. I appreciate your respect for him, if not his blood. You'll do well as Grand Vizier, Ramses. In life, I ruthlessly erased Akhenaten and his children from Egyptian memory. Once he became a mummy, he got a taste of his own medicine. Pharaoh Haremheb completely rewrote history. He demolished old temples, relabeled eye statues with his own name, and struck through the record books. Haremheb seems to have been ashamed of his predecessors. He sanded off the rough patches of recent history until almost no trace of chaos remained. He also established strict new laws bringing Egypt back to military greatness. He acted as if he'd taken power directly after Amenhotep III. And for about 3,000 years, he got away with it. Akhenaten, Tut, and I disappeared from the timeline. Haremheb may have even had Tutankhamun's grave entrance buried, thinking no one would ever go digging in the hot desert sand. But Haremheb didn't expect Howard Carter. When the tomb was finally unsealed in 1922, the secrets of the past came bubbling back. The mystery of Tut's quote-unquote murder invigorated investigations into ancient Egypt. It uncovered the first known instance of monotheism, 
and showed how one man's whims could send an entire kingdom into decades of chaos. Through it all, archaeologists wondered who or what killed King Tut. The most likely suspects are those who gained the most from the boy king's death, I and Haremheb. Once he was pharaoh, Haremheb tried to erase King Tut from history. He clearly thought Tut was bad for Egypt, and some people see that as a motive for murder. Though it could have been just petty politics, especially because Haremheb didn't take power immediately after Tut's death, Grand Vizier I did. If Haremheb killed Tut, he was playing the long game. Almost as long as I who waited out the reigns of three pharaohs before grabbing the crown himself. He was a proven survivor and manipulator who dreamed of stability and power. When Tut was old enough to think for himself, I might have lashed out. He had enough access to King Tut to poison him, arrange a convenient accident, or to order someone else to rip the pharaoh's heart out. If I killed Tut for political power, he would have hated Anka's scheme to keep him off the throne. So he likely arranged for the death of Hittite prince Zananza, too. It's possible Haremheb or his military cronies helped with this second murder. And if I and Haremheb killed Tut and Zananza, there wasn't anything stopping them from slaying Anke as well. Once I was the pharaoh, he was one of the gods. He couldn't be punished for any crime, including murder. All these killings had the same justification, setting Egypt back on course after Akhenaten IV's dalliance with monotheism. Come to think of it, I might have killed him, too. To be fair, Pharaoh's eye and Haremheb did save Egypt. In some respects, during their reigns, the country prospered. In his later years, Haremheb elevated his grand vizier, Ramses, to co-regent. Ramses became Ramses I, starting Egypt's 19th dynasty. And for the next thousand years or so, Egyptians worshipped their traditional pantheon of many gods. There was no more social unrest or religious revolution. But in the end, this is all conjecture. Looking over the evidence, the only murder we can actually confirm is that of the Hittite prince, Zananza. It seems he was most likely killed on the orders of Ai, in a power grab. Akhenaten probably died of natural causes, and Anke in childbirth, a fate much more common for women who have experienced stillbirths. As for the death of King Tut, there is a possibility he wasn't murdered at all. 3,000 years ago, an early death wasn't that uncommon. It might be better to leave this one unsolved, just in case there really is a mummy's curse. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. For more information on King Tut, amongst the many sources we used, we found three books especially helpful to our research. These were The Shadow King, The Bizarre Afterlife of King Tut's Mummy by Joe Marchant, 
The Murder of Tutankhamun by Dr. Bob Breyer, and Letters of the Great Kings of the Ancient Near East, The Royal Correspondence of the Late Bronze Age by Trevor Bryce. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Unsolved Murders is a Spotify original from ParCast, executive produced by Max Cutler. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and Trent Williamson as our senior production specialist. Stacey Nemec is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Maggie Admire, edited by Kylie Harrington and Tara Wells, fact-checked by Catherine Barner, researched by Mickey Taylor, produced by Freddie Beckley, and sound designed by Michael Langsner. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Joe Hernandez, Kai Jordan, Alastair Murden, Cameron Nicod, Rebecca Thomas, and Charlie Wess. Our hosts are Wendy McKenzie and me, Carter Roy. <laughs> <laughs>